Hello and welcome to an At The Flick special with Graham, Jeff and Neil. We are very pleased to have Last Chance's writer-director Phil Stubbs back with us for another of our far too infrequent director-on-director discussions. How are you doing, Phil? Good, thanks, Jeff. It's uh, great to be back on the best film podcast in the country. (laughs) This is why we like him. The money's in the post, Phil, don't you worry. So... So before we start on this, how is Last Chances doing? Because everybody keeps coming up to me and saying they've seen it on Prime and love it. Oh, that's really great to hear. Um, yeah, it seems to be uh, getting to quite a few people. Amazon Prime tells you in minutes how many have been viewed, and it's approaching half a million. Which, if this was the 80s, I'd have had to ship 6,000 VHS tapes around the place to uh, get that mark. <laughs> <laughs> Is that not how it works these days? Oh, uh, no, okay. uh, it's not DVD, in it? No. <laughs> Physical media, they don't understand, Phil. No, not at all. They're at a loss. Anyway, it's really good to have you back. And do you know what? I'm really psyched to be talking about Richard Donner as our director of choice today. Absolutely. Uh, because he's uh, always been a favourite director of mine from the 70s. And he's put the work in. I mean... You know, when I did some research putting these questions together as we go through his history, the amount of years he worked on TV before his big break is incredible. It's crazy, yeah. According to film historian Michael Barson, he is, and I quote, one of Hollywood's most reliable makers of action blockbusters. And even at 90 years old, he's still talking about making another film. He is, yeah. I've got to ask, Phil, why have you chosen him as a subject for discussion? What do you admire about his work? I'm going to answer that firstly with another question. And the question is, as I'm sure you're going to be aware of this question, why isn't Richard Donner more of a name as a director? I mean, I lucked it, I suppose, that when I started in the mid-70s, going to the cinema regularly, you you had the double whammy of The Omen and Superman. So he was there. He was front and centre. So I've always followed his career after that. But you're, you're quite right. He's got billion-dollar franchises. I mean, I don't know what more you need, but he is not, for some reason, he is not a household film director name like Spielberg, Scorsese, Lola. He just isn't. And I, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's incredible. And as I said, the amount of work he put in to get there, you would think he would be better known. So what is it about that that you admire, then? He's just an incredible storyteller, isn't he? His films are so so entertaining, they're so well made, but the characters and the story, as we'll get into when we talk about the films individually, but he's just an incredible filmmaker. And the storytelling aspect is quite key from what you're saying, because, mm. again, looking back on his career, I mean, he started out as an actor. Yeah, like Tarantino. Oh, yeah, yes, that's right. Yeah. And funny enough, I'm going to pick up on that in a moment. I, I want to come back to that. This is something about Tarantino and Donna yeah. that really struck me when I was preparing for this. He had an argument with Martin Ritt when he was doing some TV work, and then he became Martin Ritt's assistant, so he went to the other side of the camera. And then his work rate of TV through the 60s, he got Western shows, The Rifleman, Wanted Dead or Alive, Stephen Queen, cult shows, that's cult, Neil, uh, like The Man from Uncle and The Banana Splits, and the one that I remember more than anything the Twilight Zone episode, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. 
Yeah, one of its most famous episodes, arguably, isn't it? Yeah. If you think about it, it's all in one space. Yeah, for the time as well. It's a great episode, and he could do tension. And he was expanding the boundaries of TV as he was doing it, which I think annoyed a lot of his collaborators, like Steve McQueen in particular. Can I tell you the story about that? Yes, please. Yeah, go yeah. On Want Dead or Alive. Want Dead or Alive, yeah. Steve McQueen was really unhappy that he wanted to do more and more different camera angles and camera setup because McQueen was like, this is about the star. It's not about your camera angles. And eventually he got, <laughs> eventually he got Donna sacked. I didn't know that. For, that. for that reason, Donna wanted to do a very fancy moving camera angle. And for TV at that time, it must have seemed a bit exotic. Yeah, McQueen got him fired and, and refused to uh, collaborate. And, wow. and, and that's interesting because, you know, with somebody like Donna, He's got a very gruff voice. He's a very forceful personality. Absolutely, yeah. He would have stood up to McQueen. There's no doubt about it, is it, really? It was so early on in his career, though, I think, you know, if he had gone to features, I'm sure he wouldn't have stood for that. But he had, I don't think he had much power in the TV world. I, I guess they're more just guns for hire and there'll be somebody along in a minute who can uh, direct the next episode. But this comes back to your point about story. TV had particularly at this time, is all about story, getting it out fast, getting it within that hour, yeah. or in the case of Twilight Zone, within half an hour. Yeah. You've got to hit those salient points. Yeah. And I think that benefited him as we talk, and he goes on to his feature films. He became known as the king of pilots, because every time he directed a new series pilot, it would get taken. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So he was known as the king of pilots. Yeah, he did Kojak and The Fugitive and things like that, yeah. which were huge in the 60s massive franchise yeah i want to go back to that nightmare at Twenty Thousand feet i mean which had a great performance as well from shatner and it just shows how difficult these things are to put together now jordan peele remade nightmare at Twenty Thousand feet for his new version of the twilight zone all right i haven't seen that uh, well don't thank don't <laughs> <laughs> but in this in the limitations that he had and the monster was just um Bert Lancaster's make Nick Cravat up in a sort of r- rather bizarre costume yeah. on this fake wing of a plane. There is one moment in this show where Shatner is trying to convince himself there's nothing there. So he's pulled the shutter down of, of the window. And at one point, he lifts the shutter up, and there, pressing against the glass, is Nick Cravat. That must have freaked audiences out in the 60s. Absolutely. Yeah, for it to be referenced 60 years later. Yeah. yeah, It's got to hit something. Just shows the power of the guy and what he was working with and what he can achieve. And as Phil said, it's one of the Twilight Zone episodes everybody remembers. Yeah. I mean, I must admit, I haven't seen a lot of his... Well, I probably did at the time, seen some of these uh, shows, but I wouldn't yeah, be able to... Without realising, yeah. Yeah, and this is where it comes back to Tarantino because, you know, it's people like Richard Donner that are referenced so much in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. What's it called in the film, their version of what I did were alive? Bounty Law? Bounty Law. Bount, yeah, yes, that's, that's right. Failed. That's meant to be the Steve, the Steve McQueen. Yeah, and in fact, he has uh, Damon Lewis playing Steve McQueen, doesn't oh, he? Yeah, of course he does, yeah. <laughs> Just really strange. But as well as the TV work, he did make three now pretty much forgotten films in the 60s, one of which we'd like to forget, but we'll talk about that in a moment. If we have to. (laughs) (laughs) No, Neil insists we talk about it. Oh, (laughs) The first one, and again, I've not seen any of these three. The first one was X-15, which is a sort of pot boiler right stuff. 
with Charles Bronson about breaking the sound barrier and pilots in the Cold War and things like that. Yeah. And it sounds interesting, but just pretty much a B-movie, I think, for its time. Yeah, it didn't get much reception, I don't think, at the time. It just pretty much vanished. Yeah. Uh, have you seen anything on this at all? I couldn't no. even find a trailer. No. I tried. Yeah, some of this stuff is hard to track down. It's not surprising after that. He goes back into TV, and then he moved over to the UK to do pretty much two films back-to-back. You've got Salt and Pepper, yeah. starring Sammy Davis Jr. and Peter Lawford. Yeah. Part of the swing in London of the late 60s. Yeah. And in fact, it was successful because there was a sequel to it as well, I believe. It was financially successful, yes. You can you can say that. <laughs> Artistically, not so much. No. And then, of course, we've got Twinkie. <laughs> so, moving on. Moving uh, on. Moving on. <laughs> yeah, now, now we've Nothing got to see here. <laughs> now we've got our listeners wondering what this... Well, listeners, we have Charles Bronson and Susan George. You know, one a big star at the time and one an up-and-coming star. He plays a 38-year-old writer in London married to a 16-year-old schoolgirl. Yep, you heard that right. Funnily enough, you'll have a hard job tracking this film down today. <laughs> but it's everything about it is just, what? What? Even the poster, I found the poster and it says, He's almost 40. She's almost 16. Oh I'm going, well, hang on. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's, it's just showing. I mean, you've seen the trailer, haven't you, Phil? I haven't, actually, and I don't think I want to. No, no, I didn't understand that. Yeah. It is just so bizarre, Yeah, a subject. I mean, all I can think of is... At that time in, in UK cinema, you had to serve with love and films like that, which were very successful. True. And they were looking for films in that genre and probably with an innocence about it, created this. Yeah. And and you said that uh, when we were talking earlier, there were a couple of titles for this before Twinkie. It was first called London Affair. And then it was Lola. God knows where that comes from. Maybe it's a play on Lolita. I think it was, yeah. Yeah. And then they settled on Twinkie and then it disappeared rather quickly. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't a glittering film career in the 60s. And had it remained like that, we probably wouldn't be talking about him today, Phil. No, he wasn't a first time out of the gate instant success, really. But that that doesn't matter. That happens a lot. He picked himself up and went back to... America, and again, worked on TV on such shows as Streets of San Francisco, Kojak, Petricelli. We used to like Petricelli. And then sort of got his chance by a couple of TV movies. And one in particular was a huge hit at the time. And I saw it years and years ago called Sarah T. Portrait of a Teenage Alcoholic, starring Linda Blair as said alcoholic. Also features an up-and-coming Mark Hamill. Oh, is that right? Oh, I didn't know that one. I think, again, because it was 75, it was shown early 75, so the whole thing with The Exorcist and Linda Blair was still big. Oh, so yeah. So she was a yeah, big star, and it got knockout ratings, and that got him noticed by Fox for The Omen. And and I think this is where things get really interesting. So you said earlier about, you know, he had in his mind what he wanted to do, and McQueen didn't yeah. like that. Yeah. It was the same with The Omen. He had... His idea in mind of this script that he inherited, he threw out all the satanic stuff and then sort of decided, this is what I'm going to make. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, the original script is called The Antichrist, if I'm not mistaken, which is slightly more on the nose. It's interesting if you think about 
after The Exorcist was a gigantic hit. So for him to say, I, I want to take out the occult stuff as much as possible, is actually pretty brave, really, if you think about it. And he wants to make it more of a psychological thriller. For me, that, well, for a lot of people, that really works because it's a, a massive hit. Yeah, what do you think of the film? I think it's great. I mean, I first saw it when I probably shouldn't have done, when I was about 10, and I, I just really liked it. And it freaked out some of my friends of a similar age. <laughs> I loved it. I just thought, oh, this is a great story. But what's interesting to me is if you take that film as a standalone at the time, it has a different kind of storyline because it could be just all in Gregory Peck's head in a kind of psychological way, a lot of bizarre coincidences, and he's just going to murder his son. Whereas because the sequels came out, it just became evident, oh, no, it is the Antichrist. But if I remember rightly in The Omen, it's not a bit vague, a bit grey yet, which makes it more interesting. Yeah, and with some you know, some strong characters, you've got Billy Whitelaw, uh, David Warner, uh, obviously Gregory Peck and Lee Remick. I mean, that is an A-list cast there. Yeah, I mean, the team he drew together. And the cinematographer, Gil Taylor, went on to do a little film called Star Wars after that as well. I wonder what but, happened to that. Oh, yeah. No one's ever heard of it. it just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll, I'll tell you about the casting of the, the little boy. I can't remember the actor's name. But uh, Richard Donner's known for being a very family, jovial, friendly person. And he goes up to the little boy in the audition. He says, just attack me as fierce as you can. Don't worry about hurting me. Just come, come at me and attack me, okay? And we'll get this on camera. And the little boy runs up to him and kicks him straight between the legs and he falls down. <laughs> and he goes, that's the kid! <laughs> <laughs> Harvey Stevens, I just referenced yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's a great story, I think. Yeah, great at taking direction, that kid. Yes, oh, it didn't yeah. work again. He did, just did that in every audition. <laughs> The whole thing with that film, I mean, I remember, again, going to the cinema at the time when this came out and the marketing for the film, you know, you'd have blocks of adverts and they'd have three, four adverts for The Omen coming soon, you know. Wow. I mean, I think we got it September time, 76, September, October 76, opened in America in June 76. It was just a massive, uh, massive hit because Peck took the role because Charlton Heston turned it down originally. Oh, there's a lot of people turned it down. But Gregory Peck was interesting because his son had just died a month before, and they were saying, you can't send this to him in a script in which he's stabbing, trying to stab his son to death. But they did, and uh, against expectation, Gregory Peck agreed. They didn't think he would, but he said, no, you've got a good story here. Because it's interesting, all those actors that turned it down, like I think Kirk Douglas is another one. He went on to do Holocaust 2000, Charlton Heston, he went on to do The Awakening, and these things were nothing. But this film just hit in every department. It had with it, Jerry Goldsmith won his only Oscar for his yeah. music score. I was going to say, it's the only time Goldsmith worked with Richard Donner. It wasn't quite, but I'll come on and talk about that later. There was another score that he was going to do, but they had to change things around and they had to drop Goldsmith's score. So in this one, amazing piece of work. It's just got a great pace. It doesn't let up. Yeah. And it yeah. just hooks the viewer in. It's, yeah, it's a great film. And the one scene that comes out of it, you talk about special effects, is that scene where David Warner, when, he's, when he gets decapitated. Yeah, yeah. It's it, memorable to me as a 10-year-old. That was, yeah. <laughs> hmm. Memorable to me as a 17-year-old. So, uh, yeah. There was another story when uh, Lee Remick, she falls off the balcony, and the producer said, just get some dead salmon and 
paint them or something. And the producer said, no, buy some live goldfish and just tip them on the floor. And he said, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. That will kill them. And he, and he refused. And, and that's interesting because, again, as Donna becomes more famous, he always puts something ecological into all his films, particularly about saving animals. Yeah, he was always like that. I think there was a reference in one of the Lethal Weapon films about not eating tuna. Yeah, oh, wow. in Lethal Weapon, there's a few, uh, there's a few themes of, yeah. Full credit to the guy, absolutely. Yeah. So after that success came Superman, where Richard Donner was going to make all of part one and most of part two at the same time. Tremendous pressure on him. How, do, how well do you think he did, Phil? Uh, he did an amazing job considering, because uh, he had a horrific time with the producer, Alexander Salkine, who got the rights to Superman, but didn't know what to do with it. Got a 500-page uh, script that was nonsense. Famous bit in it, apparently, when Superman comes down and thinks he's got neck Luthor, but it's Telly Savalas doing Kojak. That was what was meant <laughs> to be in the film. So... Um, <laughs> So that's what they were going for. So Richard Donner threw all that out. He said, no, we've got to treat this seriously. We've got to treat it like a proper story. Keyword is the similitude of everything being realistic as possible. And But he got four every single day on the budget. He was always being screamed at. Somehow the Salkines got the money together, but they were always pressuring Donner. And uh, yeah, he was meant to do two films shot at once, as we know, but it didn't work out that way. He filmed, I think, more than half of Superman 2, which is still in the film. Yeah, he got sacked. But no, the pressure he was under, probably one of the most uh, legendarily difficult film shoots of all time, I, I think. Can I just pick up on that point you're saying he threw the script down? It's interesting. He took the the script to make Superman almost the son of God, almost like a Christ figure. Yeah. You know, the father is sent into Earth. I think at one point in the film, Brando says, they're a good people, Kalel. Uh, they wish to be a great people. All they lack is the light to show them the way. Yeah. And Zod as Lucifer, which I hadn't thought about until recently. No, you know what? I ne- no, I, that <laughs> never occurred to me either. Thrown out of heaven. Yeah. Thrown out of heaven. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, no wonder yeah. it's one of Graham's favourite films. Oh, come <laughs> on. <laughs> right. The Phantom Zone, a.k.a. Purgatory. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I, honestly, all this time, and I love this movie, <laughs> and I, I never, <laughs> ever picked up on that Zod is Lucifer. Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. I was involved in the production of this film in the UK. I'd just moved to Bristol from Belfast and um, going to get uh, some coffee. This very attractive young lady said to me, oh, excuse me, could I ask you a questionnaire? And she showed me a picture of Superman. And then she just, it was one of those where they were just asking people what they hoped to see in this new film called Superman. And I said, I want to see him fly. And hey, hey. Yeah, that this film is a success, really. Exactly, it's all down to me. Yeah, you are credited, uh, actually. (laughs) And to be fair, that was the poster tagline: "You'll believe a man can fly." Can fly. Mm. It was all down to you, Graham. (laughs) Thoughts on the cast, especially Christopher Reeve, of course, and the special effects on the movie. Well, that's a great question because uh, they had a nightmare casting the main role. They, they tried out about 200 people and Donna said, we're not casting someone famous because there's you know, suggestions of Sylvester Stallone, Paul Newman, a few others. And, and he said, no, nobody will believe it. 
they even auditioned somebody's dentist who was connected to the production. So he just looked a little bit, he had black hair, and they even auditioned him. <laughs> <laughs> but then a, a casting director from New York said, oh, there's this really talented young bloke, but he's as skinny as a rake, but he's six foot four, and he's got this something about him, which we call Christopher Reed, did the audition. And uh, straight away, he just instantly... It just he, clicked. He just, he just was right. Yes, he was, wasn't he? It's yeah. just it was just spot on. I don't think anybody else would have worked. I don't, think, I don't think they. I don't think. Yeah, you're right. I don't think there'd been any other person. Literally. Yeah, as you say, if it been a well known person, disassociated yourself from the main character, he was. You know, he'd literally turned up and straight into Superman, as if he had just landed on Earth. It's interesting. Things went badly wrong with the producers who effectively cut him out. I mean, he's uncredited on the Superman 2 and brought in Richard Lester. What do you understand about why that happened and what was the impact on the still extremely successful sequel? Uh, well, the worst thing is they, they actually brought Richard Lester in while he was still shooting Superman 1 as a kind of go-between. Donna had to have a humiliation of another director on his set. They actually ended up getting on okay personally, but it, but it was another affront by the Salkinds. The tension was just getting worse and worse and worse. And I think they were trying to film both films. And they said, you know what, forget Superman 2, finish Superman 1, and we'll get it out for Christmas. And they did. And then not long after, it's a gigantic hit, one of the biggest hits around the world, and arguably the greatest superhero film of all time, which I think it is, in my opinion. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, I think it is. And then yeah. Donna gets sacked. <laughs> it's unbelievable, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Actually, unbelievable. Have you seen his cut of Superman 2? I think Richard I Donner have. did a cut, didn't he? I have, but the, the difficulty with it is because it's got so many unfinished parts and it's got screen tests mm. and things, because that's all he had, it's not fair to compare it to, to anything. I, mean, I don't hate Superman 2 as it is, but, but it's, it definitely hasn't got the vibe that Donner does not have. And I think the reason for that, and I know people working there didn't get on because this is another aspect of what went wrong with this is when you have marlin can't be asked to learn my lines oh, Brando. god that's a story and a half isn't it yeah yeah i don't need to learn lines. write the words on the board so it, it'll just look like it's you know he was, just taking the, he was just taking the piss i'll be honest and i think donna realized at some point he couldn't take him seriously because he said he said you know richard i should play I should play Joel like a green suitcase. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's yeah, right. that, yes. that, that all. And yeah. uh, you know, he doesn't he didn't learn his lines anymore from that point on. He, so he, the other actors had to have the, his lines written on their backs and stuff like that. But <laughs> God. But his performance in the film is is good enough to admit it works. I think that's right. Because he is so good, you miss him in Superman too. He did film scenes for Superman 2, but they cut it all out so they wouldn't have to pay him. Superman's mum turns up. You know, Susanna York comes in and fills that role. That's right. And she's a great actress, uh, but you miss... It doesn't have that connection that the father yeah. and son exactly. Superman is a father-son relationship film. It yes, it doesn't link do the that. two, does it? No. no films, does it? No. I, mean, I mean, we won't go into it, but Superman 2 does some ridiculous things that completely break with the world building that Donna did in the first one. Richard Lester didn't care about character particularly like Donna did. I don't think he just... And, and I think Lester is one of these quirky historical filmmakers. I mean, he worked for the Salkins before in The Three and Four Musketeers. Oh, of course, yeah. And films like that, um, funny thing happened to me in the way that the forum, he brought it all back in. I mean... If you look at the opening of Superman 3, oh. which Lester did, 
you know, and it's like beyond our Ken meets Superman. Oh, <laughs> he wanted was Kenneth Williams. He had the lot. <laughs> yeah. Donna survived all of this. He'd had two yeah. massive hits. Yeah, but that did crush him, though. Getting sacked was an absolutely devastating blow for him. The cast weren't happy. The, the crew weren't happy. There was almost a kind of revolt over it that they were contracted to do whatever the South Times wanted. But the South Times did make the film exist in the first place, so it's probably too harsh on them. It's a shame. I mean, but then again, so here's the thing, right? With everything that's, that's bad here, there's always something good comes out of it. And so, for me... And out of chaos and all that. Out of chaos. Yeah, Superman came out of it, so he's fired from Superman 2. So what does Richard Donner do? He goes off and makes a much smaller film, a film called Inside Moves. Now, I love this movie. Mm. It's a cult film in America. You can't get it over here. I've tried, it, I've tried Jeff. You can't. Well, I've got a copy. Yeah, I'll buy it off you sometime. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Have you ever seen it? No, well, that's the thing. I'd like to. Oh, I've heard about it. So let me tell you a story about this then. It's only ever been shown on TV once. That was on Channel 4 a couple of years after it was released. It was never released in cinemas in the UK, or if it did, it had a limited release in London. The video at the time which came out has the most inappropriate cover for any film I've ever seen. You know, this guy tries to commit suicide in the beginning, and he jumps and he lands on a car and he gets crippled. It's him on that car with blood everywhere. That's the cover of the video. Wow. And that the film is an astonishing film. It's the only film where a cast member in any Richard Donner film was nominated for an Oscar. Diana Scarwood got nominated for Best Supporting Actress. I've heard it's a really good film. But, uh, it did, I, uh, when this COVID nonsense is over, then pop over. I'll put it on. We'll have a beer and watch it. It yeah. is I yes, watch. It's a wonderful film. Cup of tea for me, but yes, please. Okay, but when it came out, it, uh, it did absolutely no business, I don't think, sadly. No, so it had Harold Russell in it, and it's his uh, first performance he'd done since uh, appearing in Best Years of Our Lives in 1946. Oh, wow, where he won an Oscar because he believed in this project. You know, it is about people who have disabilities coming together and overcoming that, and it's a really, really upbeat. But yeah. even then, there's a slight hard edge to it, which I won't spoil for you because you, know, you, you just need to see this film. Okay. Brilliant job, score. But I guess my question then is, why is it, if Diana Scarwood's nominated for an, uh, an Oscar, why do you think his films aren't recognised for the performances at awards time? That's a great question because most of his films have got really great performances in. It was either after Omen or Superman, they were both filmed in England. He had a go at the Academy for completely ignoring his crew's work. It might be the Omen. So he kind of attacked the, the Academy. Ah, right. Oh, that would explain it then. Yeah. Ah. That's the theory. And they hold a grudge. I think they do. Because, to be quite honest, Christopher Reeve should have been nominated for Superman. Oh, yeah. Easily, yeah. At well, the very st- least, technicals. Yeah. One of the technical. So he's only 24 as well at the time. <laughs> I remember an interview with him at the time. He said, when he, as you said earlier, he was quite thin. Yeah. And uh, he's been interviewed and he said, Yeah, yeah. If I turn sideways, I look like Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> and he had, uh, he had David Krause, Darth Vader, uh, do a, a bodybuilding program for him to get into shape for it. All right. Yeah. Yeah, these are great films and they just to me they hold the the test of time 
before we go into the next phase of his career, which I know Graham's chomping at the bit to talk about, um, <laughs> I want to mention a film which came and went at the time to virtually no acclaim, no mention, but it's such a huge cult hit today, and that's Lady Hawk. Yes. What are your thoughts on this one, and why do you think it's gained popularity? Well, I do have some problems with Lady Hawk, unfortunately. I don't know what he was thinking with that music score. That is a controversial thing, I believe. Because when I first saw it, I, I just thought, you know, it's that kind of electronic, modern... And I, I just thought it just seemed really out of place. And apparently his team were begging him to change the score, but he wouldn't. But yeah, apart from that, story again, storytelling is great. You know, Rucker Ha, Michelle Pfeiffer and all that. That's all really good stuff. But I, I personally couldn't get past that score. And that's interesting. And that compares differently to Graham. You have a different take on this film. I, I, I really liked it. I just thought it was so different at the time. And, oh, yeah. uh, you know, having a, a basically a nerd uh, in Matthew Broderick as the, as the main character, I just absolutely loved it when I saw it. I thought it was fabulous. And I liked the music because I thought it just was a nice juxtaposition against the medieval setting. I think that's what Donna said, yeah, exactly. Oh, right. <laughs> we're on the same page. <laughs> fair enough. I mean, the trouble is I saw it out of the timeline. I didn't probably see it till 2000 and something, so I do think it helps when you see a film closer to its timeline as well. Donna always claims it's his favourite film because that's where he met his wife on. He wasn't yeah. married to Michelle Pfeiffer, was he? <laughs> no, he wasn't married to Michelle Pfeiffer. <laughs> <laughs> but I wouldn't blame him if he was. She no, was no. fabulous looking in that film. Absolutely. Well, you've missed out the Goonies. Yes. What's your opinion of the Goonies? I, I was quite surprised because I liked the Goonies when I saw it. I thought, it, it, yeah, it's a kid's film. It's really funny. And when many years later, when I had children myself, I showed them the Goonies and they roared with it and thought it was great sort of Indiana Jones for kids. Yeah. Any thoughts on the Goonies? Did yeah. you, again, you probably saw that uh, many years later. Uh, I absolutely agree. Actually, actually, that one I saw closer to the timeline in the eighties, so that one is, is a bit more, a bit closer. The Goonies is is really Spielberg's thing. Donna was kind of drafted in because of his enthusiasm and how he works well with kids, and and he got those great natural performances. Ah, right. So it's really. It's a, I was um. The other thing that uh, I liked about the Goonies was all the little gadgets and things they had. And they had those um, those coins, and when they held them up, they could see where the treasure was. And they used the exact same thing in Rise of Skywalker. J.J. Abrams stole that. Because when she holds up that stupid knife and it matches the uh, the top of the Star Destroyer, <laughs> I thought, that's the Goonies! <laughs> After that, Richard Donner found a film franchise in Lethal Weapon. And every, anybody who's listening to this and who listens to our show regularly will know why I'm doing these questions. It's because I once mentioned to Jeff that I cannot stand Mel Gibson. And Jeff, being the Picasso of pettiness, uh, is making me read out all the uh, Mel Gibson questions. Sorry about this, Phil. Okay. <laughs> but... Um, at the time, both he, Donner, and uh, star Mel Gibson were thought as being past their sell-by date. Why do you think this series hit such a nerve? The thing with Lethal Weapon is Richard Donner apparently saw Rambo 2 
and thought, I want to do one of those, which is a really strange connection to me. <laughs> nothing like it. <laughs> I think he just meant, I, I assume he just meant a, a big action kind of film, but uh, he did kind of reinvent the genre a bit because it got so copied afterwards. And I think people just enjoyed the mixture of the humour, but the serious action and the uh, Mel Gibson's performance uh, and, the, and all the other performances as well. Oh, what do you want to hear, man? Do you want to hear that sometimes I think about eating a bullet? Huh? Well, I do. I do. I even got a special one for the occasion with a hollow point. Look, make sure it blows the back of my goddamn head out. Do the job right. Every single day I wake up and I think of a reason not to do it every single day. I must admit, even though I don't like Mel Gibson, he is good in this. He is, the first um, especially, yeah. Yeah, and it's, you know, it sets the standard for the comedy cop buddy movie for the next, yeah, 30, 40 years, really. And, you know, you can see it in Jeff, one of Jeff's favourite, uh, Bad Boys for Life, which he raved about this oh, year. Right. Okay. As one of his favourite <laughs> films. There, yeah. I got you back, Jeff. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's the connection between those two. Isn't yeah, it? it's just their yeah. chemistry as well between them. Yeah. Danny Glover yeah. and Gibson is superb. In the script, uh, Danny Glover's character is white. Oh wow! So, so then when Donna found Glover, he thought, "Well, let's." I think it's one of the first films, which is a terrible thing to say, one of the first films that really helped change the definition of a black role in a film. Where you know he was at, he was you know pretty well off, isn't he? He's got a nice big house. You know, and it sounds terrible, but that was one of the first times you saw a, a black character actually doing really well. On that, which is your favourite Lethal Weapon movie, you uh, know, and why? For me, it's the first one, because I, I think yeah. I think Mel Gibson's better in it. I also think as the sequels went along, they got more and more comedic and more silly. Yeah. I mean, by the time they get to the fourth one, to me, it's almost like a parody. They're almost parodying themselves, playing those characters, whereas in the first one, you had a lot... It just seemed a bit more serious, and uh, storytelling was a bit more compelling to me in the first one. Yeah, and they're about to make a, a lethal weapon five together. Yeah. Do you think after all this time, it's been twenty years since the last one? I Do you think this might be a mistake. I personally have doubts about that in lots of ways. I doubt it's going to happen. I mean, they're saying Richard Donner's going to direct it, but yeah, not being ages, but he's ninety and. I can't He'll turn ninety later this year, won't he? Yeah. yeah, I can't see it personally. I'll be surprised if it gets made. But strange things have happened. But yeah. I can hear Jeff in the background who's making sorky comments. Yeah, I know I'm stunned as well, not realizing that, of course, although he can't hear you, Phil. Yeah, we can hear him, we can and hear his him. voice is being recorded. Oh, is that that you telling me to shut up? <laughs> yeah, and now he's moaning that I'm telling him to shut up. <laughs> Oh, I just, this is the best podcast we've recorded ever. <laughs> Jeff, Jeff's a disembodied voice. <laughs> and I'm sure he's getting irate because he wanted to drop in loads and loads of stuff about South Africa. Well, yeah. I mean, there was um, every film did, he did manage to get a theme in there about uh, an issue that was important to him. So second yeah. one was uh, apartheid. Third one was uh, guns and selling bullets on the streets and things and Fourth form was people smuggling, I think. But yeah. Yeah, but he, yeah, he always did try to get a, a serious message in. Donner also rates Mel Gibson as his favourite actor. <laughs> and, and, uh, and he's made six films together. Seven 
if you count his work, the work he did on payback, what is that connection, these two, and does it show on the screen? Well, it's interesting because I don't think Donna finds Gibson technically easy to work with. I don't think anybody does. I mean, um, yeah. I mean, he himself said uh, on the second Lethal Weapon film, he realised he had to keep Mel busy when he's not filming because he's annoying. And <laughs> so we gave him, a, yeah. So we gave him a video camera, and he said, "Make your own movies." And those are actually can be found on YouTube if anybody's interested. You can see Mel Gibson's homemade movies he shot on the set of on Lethal Weapon. Wow. I mean, it worked. It worked financially. It worked. Out of that came uh, uh, Braveheart. Yeah. yeah. And that's what started it. Richard well, Donner's to blame. Well, as, yeah. as Jeff once said, <laughs> I think, to be commended. Uh, Richard Donner was a huge influence on Mel Gibson's directing. Mm, absolutely. So, yeah. 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 Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so we spoke with Lethal Weapon there. Uh, sorry I couldn't be part of that conversation due to technical issues. There's so much I would have loved to have said. Let's look at, at you know what's happened after Lethal Weapon. I think it's fair to say his last two films, Timeline and 16 Blocks, were disappointing. Timeline had to be recut, and it meant he lost a wonderful Goldsmith score. And I think he put Tyler Bates onto that one in the end. But, you know, they're not great films. Do you think the old Richard Donner magic has now deserted him? Oh, sadly, yes. I mean, Timeline, I really enjoyed the book, the Michael Crichton book, and uh, the film is just, I don't know what it is. It's, a, it's just a complete mess. Yeah. The, the storytelling is not there that he's famous for, in my opinion. Yeah, and I think on both instances, 16 blocks as well, you know, it's a, it's a good idea. I didn't feel there was any tension in that film. What, what are your thoughts, Phil? I actually haven't seen 16 Blocks because, I'll be honest with you, I didn't realise it was directed by Richard Donner all these years until recently, and it just didn't appeal to me. I just thought, oh. But I did see Assassins. That was in between the two of them, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, which I thought was better than Timeline. Not a terrible film, but not definitely not great. I, I think with Assassins, for me, it's... You go back and you look at something like Superman or even The Omen, and there's almost like an ensemble cast in there. Yeah. But in Assassins, it's like all these people are in different films. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Actually, Jeff, that's quite insightful. Because what I saw, I, I thought they've glued this together. I mean, Antonio Banderas is doing his thing and Sylvester Stallone's being really moody, but they just never seem to connect, even though the whole film is about... You know, Banderas yeah. wanting to take over where Stallone left off. I mean, it just seems very fractured. And Banderas is chewing the scenery in that film, if I remember yes, right. he's great. <laughs> but yeah, it's, but, uh, it's, not, it's not a successful film, not that second, no, unfortunately. It's written by the Wachowskis, isn't it? That's right. Oh, yeah. Well, is it? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and the cast is brilliant. I mean, apart from those two, it's Julianne Moore as yeah. well. yeah. I thought it was going to be good, I'll be honest. I thought I was looking forward to it, but at the time I didn't. I enjoyed it, but it wasn't great. There's something I can take away from all of them, from that, from Timeline, and even from 16 Blocks. You you compare them to to other films he's made, even the Lethal Weapon films. There's just something missing, I think. Almost his heart isn't in it. Yeah. I don't know what, I don't know. know. But, But the fact is, I mean, he's 91 this year. Yeah. 
and he's talking about making Lethal Weapon 5. That's right. Uh, I'll believe it when I see it, to be honest, but uh, stranger things have happened. I mean, the thing about Richard Donner is, which uh, we should mention, is he didn't really make his first big film until he was 46, and that's unusual. Mm. You know, Spielberg was bloody 24 or something ridiculous when he did George. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but so, similar to me, uh, I did my first film when I was 45, but without the talent and the success of Richard Donner. So what you're saying is you could be working with the Melson. Oh <laughs> no, Jeff, oh, the, Jeff yeah, I'll refer you to the comments I made a few moments ago when I said if I was gonna work with the Megatai it wouldn't be that one. <laughs> <laughs> but Jeff, why are you insulting our guest? <laughs> again. Again, I I want I want Phil to come back. Don't, don't. But that's one thing that Phil does, and that is in common with Richard Donner, is you know how to put an ensemble cast together. You look oh. at your cast in Last Chances. Yeah, oh, yeah. good point. Oh, thank good you. recovery there, Jeff. Very that good recovery. Well recovered. <laughs> Very good recovery. I'm flattered now. <laughs> so while we're talking about you and moving on from Richard Donner, and I think we'll, we'll draw a, a veil over a guy who's coming yeah. up to 91, which is a good innings. Yeah, um, really. you're working on a new script at the moment. I don't want to give any or reveal any details here. Yeah. So all I'll ask is, how is the writing process going at the moment? Well, this, I'm starting to realise now those stories people talk about how difficult their second piece of work is. I'm starting to realise what they meant. <laughs> you know, because you do your first one, you're excited because it's your very first one. It's like it's got this whole level of excitement and motivation. Your second one, you forgot how much hard work the first one was but you don't have that kind of excitement because it's your very first one. Um, yeah, it, it's difficult, but I, I have got a story. It's very diff- uh, different to Last Chances, which is a good thing, I think. Yes, extremely different. You're going to be quite surprised when you, when you see it. That's all I can say. Well, I'm looking forward to being impressed again. So, oh, thank you. Yes. So yeah. it's, been it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you again, Phil. I'm sorry it was a bit piecemeal and I couldn't no. take part in the Lethal Weapon part, although... Others on here would feel that's a blessing in disguise. Um, no, just a blessing. No disguise. On that. <laughs> that was a blessing. No, it's been an absolute pleasure, and uh, I, I prefer to be with you in person, but for obvious reasons. Uh, yeah, no, no, no. Yes, but that's coming, that's coming soon, mate. Yeah, hopefully uh, the vaccinations are going to continue to pay for everybody, and uh, we'll start to get back to some normality in the film-watching and filmmaking world of settings. Yeah, what films are you looking forward to this year, Phil? Oh, that's a good question. Same <laughs> ones you were looking forward to in twenty twenty. Classic, classic, exactly right. The ones, the ones that they made two years ago. But yeah, the show still being released, probably. I haven't really thought about it, Jeff. To be honest, I think I've probably been too hunkered down doing the writing. But it won't be in a, yeah. on a cinema screen. I'm pretty sure of that. Yeah, it's a few. Uh, a Mank is one I want to see. I know we got uh, it's coming up in our end of Feb review show, so I'll have seen it by then. But uh, you know, but Mank, uh, yeah, Mankovitz uh, sounds quite fascinating. Yeah, so as, far, as far as new films go, I did. I really enjoyed Soul. Oh yes, yeah, yeah that's yeah, that's on my list to watch as well. Yeah, highly recommended. Yeah, yeah. In the meantime, and that was a really really good discussion about Mr. Donner. If you want to read an interview with the man himself, go to Movies in Focus and check out Niall's interview with the great man. It is an excellent read. Wow. So, Phil, thanks once again. Any thoughts on who we're going to be talking about next? 
Uh, I have a feeling it might be Robert Rodriguez. Oof. Ooh, but, um, I just want to say to the thank to the uh, the listeners and thank to Elijah, a friend of your show, because he gave me some very nice feedback a while ago about my film, which was really helpful. And and that goes to show. I mean, Elijah's over in the states, so yeah, uh, I think he's know, the only sh- person in America who's watched it, according to my stats. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, it's available in America, but for some reason, it, 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 you know, it's doing well over here, so that's fine. No, that's all right. We we have some contacts in America. Ooh, we'll get them. We'll get them working. Okay. Yeah, me. definitely. Yeah. Thank you, Phil. It's been an absolute pleasure, and thank you for your day job that you do. It's really important. Thank you for looking after those people. Yeah, yeah absolutely. We look forward to talking to you again and hopefully not so far into the future. Yeah, we won't leave it as long next time. So, yeah, it'll be great. Look forward to it. Thanks. Um, yeah, we'll try and not have a pandemic the next time yeah, in between. Yeah. yeah. That's what we're aiming for. That'll be good. <laughs> Thank okay. you. Okay. Thank you very much. Cheers. Cheers. To make sure you never miss an episode of this podcast, please subscribe to At The Flicks at our website, attheflicks.uk. And if possible, please remember to rate and review At The Flicks wherever you get your podcasts. You can contact the team on Twitter or by email. Our contact details are also on our website, attheflicks.uk. Thanks for listening. <laughs>